The opening of the book of Revelation is key. It begins with a vision of the risen Christ in glory and it is then followed by letters to seven named churches. The seven are named not because they are especially good or because they are especially bad, but because they are typical. It has often been said, if you want to understand Revelation, you do it with a concordance in Greek New Testament in one hand and a calculator in the other, because it's full of numbers. Put the calculator down. It's not that kind of arithmetic. This is a symbolic number. Seven means the whole. These seven churches represent the whole church. So in this vision, the whole church is brought face to face with Christ and made to contemplate the vision. And it is that vision which is intended to fuel and motivate and drive all that we are and all that we do. Let's begin then with reflecting on our vision of God. The book of Revelation was written towards the end of the first century to encourage Christians facing one of the first wholesale persecutions. There had been persecution virtually since the very beginning, in the first place by the Jewish authorities and then latterly by the Romans. But it was usually regional and piecemeal. But for the first time, the Emperor Domitian had threatened to exterminate the Christian faith from the empire. Now when your church is threatened, when your life, your church, your faith, your very being is threatened, then you fall back upon a very big question. Is God worth it? What sort of God is worth the fear, the threat, the trouble that we're looking at? Not long after the Second World War, J.B. Phillips, who had become famous in the 1940s for his translations of the Gospels and the, well, the whole of the New Testament into modern English, and also tried to do the same thing with the Old Testament but didn't get any further than the four eighth century prophets. He said when he wrote in his preface, I'd never, I've forgotten how many untranslatable puns there are in a single Hebrew sentence. Out of that he wrote a book which is essentially his testimony of encountering God in the scriptures in the original. The title of the book is Your God is Too Small. Your God is Too Small. I read it about 40 years ago. I can't actually remember anything about the book except the title. That has stayed with me ever since. Phillips was writing to a church which was losing members, which was losing confidence, which was losing its vision. And he felt that the church was allowing the faith to become too domesticated, too safe. Living in a culture that says, for example, you do not mix religion and politics. If you give in to that, you're allowing the faith to be boxed in, domesticated and made safe. The root of the problem is that can only happen when you have not clearly seen a vision of a God who can never, ever be made safe and domesticated. You cannot put this God in any box, said Phillips. 
If you start from a wrong vision of God, then you will end up with a wrong vision of the Christian faith. For example, if you believe in a God who's up there, and that's it, he's, he's that thing up there, then you will end up with a Christianity which is some kind of esoteric philosophy, a, a religion rather than a way of life. An optional extra for those who want it, rather than something which is absolutely key and core to human existence. Revelation begins with the right vision. Not some transcendent philosophical God. Not even, notice, the Father on the throne, which is what we might expect. No, this is Christ in glory. And that is the most important window into the heart of God that we need to see. Because the glorified Christ includes two important elements of our God. First, it includes his humanity. This is the God who is involved with all people. This is the God who has been where you are. This is the God who has become part of us in order to make us part of him. This is the God of compassion, who understands every human weakness because he's been there. His humanity, but also his glory and his majesty. This is the God who takes your breath away. This is the God who stops you in your tracks. This is the God who makes you see everything in a different light because his presence changes everything. This is the God who is victorious over death, who is Lord of all, who has final and complete authority. This is the God before whom there can only ever be one appropriate response. Worship. This is the vision which the church is summoned to see. This is the God before whom we stand. And that vision of God will shape our vision of the church. Think of this. The church to whom John wrote his revelation was a threatened church. It faced the whole might of the Roman Empire. It also sometimes faced the suspicions of local people who were prejudiced against this new religion. It was even a church that was divided amongst itself. You know, I've often found in discussions and debates, people will say something like, you know, if only we could get back to the New Testament church. And the only possible response is, well, which one do you want? You have the Palestinian conservative Aramaic-speaking disciples. You have the Hellenistic Jewish Christian disciples. You have the Gentile Greek-speaking believers from Antioch or from Athens. Or from... Which one do you want? And don't look to it as a perfect harmony because it wasn't. Jewish versus Gentile Christians. Enthusiastic new converts versus the older, more cautious leaders. And look at these seven. The seven who are chosen as representatives. Ephesus was worn out. 
Smyrna and Philadelphia were facing local opposition. Pergamum and Theatira were drifting into immoral teachings. Sardis was virtually spiritually dead. Laodicea was complacent. This was a church that was definitely showing signs of wear and tear and that was nothing to do with the property committee. The vision that we have here is to recall them and us to a true discipleship, a true vision of what it is to be the church of Jesus Christ. The pressures on us here are not as dramatic as persecution. Although there are Christians in many places in the world who are facing exactly that, persecution to martyrdom. But our churches do show signs of wear and tear. Some churches cling to life year by year. And they finally close when somebody dies. Somebody crucial that's done everything is no longer able to do it. Moves on. And the fellowship packs up. Others face competition from more vigorous churches or particularly since the change in Sunday legislation from other community activities. When I started in ministry we had big Sunday schools and all of the football happened on a Saturday. Now those who would have been in our Sunday school are playing football on the Sunday because that's when the schools do it. It's a different world and it's moved the ball game. Still others struggle on carrying the increasingly heavy burden of old buildings Listed buildings, heaven, deliver us from build, listed buildings, been there, done that. Big maintenance costs. Why? What for? What, what do we, why, do, why do they struggle on? Why do we keep on going? Is it, as somebody once said to me, to keep up a Methodist witness? Uh, what does that mean? Do you know what it means? Is it because the folk in that church want to make sure that church is long enough for them to have their funeral services there then what happens after that doesn't matter yeah I've been there I've done that I've done the funerals why do we face up to all of these threats and struggles and keep on going the churches of Asia Minor needed to be reminded of their vision Perhaps we need to refresh our own to understand why we're here. John Wesley said, God raised up the Methodist people to spread scriptural holiness throughout the land. That job's not done yet, is it? We still have a commission. We still have a task. And in order to do that, to be the disciples of Jesus who can do that, we need to be both the community of saints and the school for sinners both we are the place where God can be seen not because we've ticked the right doctrinal and theological boxes but because in the love and light and compassion of the fellowship and the lives of the believers the risen Jesus is made manifest if people see the love they'll believe it we are the evidence for the claims of the gospel. And we are also the place where broken and messy lives can be brought for healing, for forgiveness.
I've lost count of the number of folk have said to me after a funeral or whatever, I would come to church but I'm not good enough. I say, well I do go to church because I'm not good enough. But you're the vicar. Yeah. Pray for them. We are the little local chapel. We are the people you see week by week. We are the worldwide family, worshipping in such a wide range of languages and traditions and theologies. We are the people who gather to sing His praises and worship Him, and we are the people who go out to live for Him and serve Him. Look again at the familiar details. The every Sunday activity. Look again and recapture the vision. We are the church of the risen Jesus. We are here to serve Him and He is here to enable us. And so we have a vision of our task. The churches in Asia Minor seemed to be engrossed in their own situation. Some were clearly struggling to survive. Others were quietly complacent, untroubled because, well, all the problems were over the other side of the hills, weren't they? We're all right. Hmm. The risen Jesus has spoken through this vision. He surprised them. He's woken them up. He's grabbed their attention. He's grabbed them by the lapels. He's made them look. And he's reminded them of who he is and who they are. And for each, he has instructions. They're reminded of the faith they have received. The faith from which some were straying and encouraged to hold on to it, hold it fast and live it. Those who are becoming slack in their discipleship are told to turn from their sin, to be forgiven, to be renewed. Those who are feeling the pressure are told to hang in there, be faithful, even if that means death. Because I've defeated death, he says. And in each case, the instruction is given, if you have ears, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The same risen Jesus is speaking to the churches today. Our opposition may not be persecution, but distraction. There are too many things to occupy people's minds and lives. The church feels helpless in the mind of these distractions. And there's a temptation to be always looking for something new to do. What's the next advert going to be? Hmm. Well, there will always be new ways of communication. And we need to be up to the mark in saying things in the way and in the place where people will hear and see. That's fair enough. But our task will always be the same at the heart. We are called to be the church, the people of God. He's telling us to remember the faith we've been given and to live it. If our discipleship is slack, he wants us to turn back to him. To be renewed and forgiven. If we're feeling the pressure, the pressure of the never-ending need for money, for people to run things, the feeling that the world doesn't really want us, that our community doesn't really want us, and if we feel ready to pack up, he encourages us to keep on going faithfully. And even if we can't see what the future will bring, he has the future in his hands. And what could look like death to us will look like resurrection to him. Above all, he says, 
If you have ears, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Be open, listen for the Word of God, and obey it. Live by the vision of our task. Be the church. So, this is Sunday. It's good to come and hear that sort of thing. And then, hang on a minute, tomorrow's Monday. Help. Life does get complicated. And everything's happening at such a pace. And the life of the church can often be such a struggle. It's easy to become so tied up in the details of our life that we lose sight of our vision. Don't let that happen. Jesus is speaking to the church now to remind us of the vision. The vision of God. The God whom we meet in worship, the God who takes our breath away with his holiness and majesty, but is still a close and compassionate friend. The vision of the church, the fellowship of disciples, the worldwide family of believers called to serve him. And the vision of the task, maintaining the faith, living the gospel in daily life, and reaching out with the hands of Christ to those who need him. Look for that vision. Make it your own and live it. Amen.